0: Exodus chapter 17, and I'll begin to read at verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek, the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand Israel prevailed and whenever he lowered his hand Amalek prevailed. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's just pray again and then we'll look at that text. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might be pleased, as we've already said, to teach us from your word this morning, teach us something that we can take away uh, from this place this morning that will um, be useful for us as we go into this week ahead, useful for us not just in terms of intellectual knowledge, but useful in our hearts, in our lives as we seek to live for the Lord Jesus. Pray, Lord God, you pleased to take this, this word and um, use it for your purposes and, and for good. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, then you are on a journey. I hope you know that, I hope you're familiar with that concept. If you're a Christian, you're on a journey to somewhere that is better than this world, better than this life. You're on a journey to the place where God is, where God dwells, place where the Lord Jesus is, to heaven, and the Bible uses many pictures to describe the, that place to which we're heading if we're Christians here this morning. It's a better country, we read in Hebrews. It's a city built by God. It's the house in which God dwells. It's a garden paradise. It's a feast and a banquet. And it's a place of rest. The Bible tells us many things about that destination, about that place to which we are heading. But the Bible also tells us much more about the journey itself. The Bible gives us lots of instruction about the journey, about how we're to continue on the journey to that destination. Instruction so that we don't veer off course and end up missing the destination altogether. And I think that's why we have this um, event recorded for us in the second half of Exodus chapter 17. It's a real battle, a real event that happened, but it's recorded for us in the Bible for our our instruction, for our learning. And if you haven't got your Bibles open, I would encourage you to to keep it open. I think we'll get more out of this if you look at the passage. The context you will remember here in Exodus is that we're in a part of the Bible that is concerned with the release, the saving of God's people out of captivity in Egypt, and their journey across the wilderness towards the land of Canaan that God had promised to them. That land of Canaan is described in the Bible as a place of abundance, a place of plenty, a land flowing with milk and honey, is how it's described it earlier on in this book of Exodus. And it's a picture of heaven, it's a picture of that destination to which we're all heading if we're Christians this morning. And God had set this people, the Israelite people, His Old Testament people on this journey by rescuing them out of that slavery in Egypt, which you'll remember he did by means of plagues, culminating in that terrible 10th plague where the firstborn son of each Egyptian household was slain. He rescued them out of Egypt. He destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And now here, when we come to chapter 17, The Israelites are on the first part of the journey, the early part of their journey towards that promised land. They're probably about three weeks out of Egypt at this point, heading away from captivity and towards their destination. Specifically, here we read in verse 8, they're at a place called Rephidim, which is on the Sinai Peninsula. If you've ever come across the Egyptian resort of Shamal Sheikh, It's in that sort of vicinity, although it probably looked a little bit different in 1400 B.C. And as they're travelling through this wilderness, they're learning certain things about the Lord, about this God who has rescued them out of captivity. If you read through chapter 16 and chapter 17, the first part of chapter 17, you'll see some of the things that they're they're learning about the Lord, about Yahweh. They're learning about his character and his wonderful provision for them. That he gives them bread and meat from heaven miraculously. He turns bitter water into sweet water. He makes rivers flow from rocks so that they are nourished and so on. And it's exactly the same in our passage this morning. Through this event that we read about here, the Israelites are meant to learn something about the God who has rescued them, They're to learn things that are going to be necessary to keep them on the journey, to keep them heading towards that promised destination. And the first thing that they're going to learn in this passage is that life on the way to the promised land is not going to be all plain sailing. Just have a look again at verse 8. Then Amalek, the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go on and fight with Israel. Amalek. The first thing that happens in this passage is that the Israelites are attacked by a a band of marauding nomads. Desert nomads, the Amalekites. And they need to take up weapons to fight, to defend themselves. And I suspect this was probably quite a shock to the Israelite people. Up until now, they had not had to fight anybody. When they'd been brought out of Egypt, they'd not had to lift an arm. On the contrary, God had said back in chapter 4 that the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And God had destroyed the most powerful army in the world, Pharaoh's army, without the Israelites having to do anything. But now they've been rescued and they're starting on this journey and suddenly they find themselves under attack. And it's a vicious attack. We have another account of this battle later on in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy. And there we're told that the Amalekites attacked when Israel was weary and worn out. And specifically they attacked all who were lagging behind. It was a cruel and cowardly attack by an enemy that was no doubt far more experienced in battle than the Israelites were. The Israelites were not warriors, they were farmers. Till recently they'd been slaves. And I wonder, friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you can relate to this yourself. It's unlikely, I suspect, that you've been attacked by um, a band of desert nomads. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will know that the Christian life Contrary to so much of what we um, are told and what we see on TV channels and so on, you will know that Christian life is not all plain sailing. We come under attack as Christians. There's hostility towards us, there are trials, there are temptations, there are fears and anxieties and weariness, things that threaten to knock us off course on the journey sometimes it's by means of discouragement we just think we don't have the energy to keep on other times the trials are more about taking our eyes off of the journey, the destination to which we're heading and going off in a different direction we don't see it in our passage this morning but if you look at verse 3 of chapter 17 you'll see that the people, the Israelite people Complain and they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? That was something that the Israelites often said in this book of Exodus. They started to think, actually, our old life, the old way of living, was, was better. Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. Wouldn't, we just be, wouldn't it just be easy if we gave up this journey and just enjoy what we could here and now? And if we're Christians, we know what it is to be tempted in that way, I'm sure. We're attacked. We face trials. Sometimes we think, why is God allowing me to go through this situation that I've been put in? It doesn't seem to make any sense. I'm sure the Israelites felt like that here. The Lord could have stopped the Amalekites in a moment without the Israelites having to do anything. He'd done that with the Egyptians. Why not do the same here with the Amalekites? Why doesn't God just take the problem away? I'm not sure we get all the answers here in this passage. We don't get all the answers as to why God allows his people sometimes to be put in difficult situations. But what this passage does do is it gives us some lessons as to how to respond when we are attacked, when we are in danger of being knocked off course, when we're fearful that we may not be able to continue in the journey. And the first lesson I think that we, we see, which I'm going to call the minor lesson because it's not the, the dominant part of the passage but, it, but it's there, is that we are to get on and fight. Joshua, who as you know would one day replace Moses as the leader of Israel, Joshua had to go out to battle with the chosen fighters. Verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men, go out and fight with Amalek. Verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him. We're not just... To let go and let God, as people sometimes say. Sometimes when we come under attack, when we come under trial, come under temptation, we have to stand up and fight. We're not to bury our heads in the sand. We're to recognise that we're under attack by an enemy that is seeking to knock us off course. An enemy who would like nothing more If it were possible than to see us not reach our destination ultimately. An enemy who, if that's not possible, who would at least like to so demoralise and diminish us on the journey to turn us into weak and miserable Christians that we're of no good to anybody else in this world. And that enemy of course, when we're Christians, is a spiritual enemy. Remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians puts it this way talking about Christians for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ultimately when we are attacked as Christians when we are attacked as God's people We're being attacked by Satan, who does not want to see us advance towards heaven. Satan, who does not want to see us living for and reflecting God's glory in this world, in our churches, in our families, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces. We're being attacked by Satan, who is ever seeking to tarnish and damage God's glory and God's honour, if that were possible. And for Christians, none of us will be immune to that. And the further we go on in the Christian life, the more we will feel it and the more we will see it. The more attacks we are going to face. I don't know whether you've ever thought, in a way, whether you're aware of that. If you're a Christian here this morning, Satan will be seeking to attack you when you're weary and worn out, when you're lagging behind, Satan will be seeking to attack you in one way or another. He'll be seeking to attack your brothers and sisters here in this congregation to stop you continuing in the journey. We have to be aware of that. We have to be ready to fight. And of course we don't do that with physical weapons and Physical arm, but we do it with spiritual weapons. The Israelite men went out behind their captain Joshua. And as Christians today, we go out behind an even better captain than Joshua. We go out behind the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ has set us the perfect example of how we respond to attacks. You'll remember that Satan came and tempted the Lord Jesus. And each time the Lord Jesus went back to the Bible, to God's word. And we're to do the same. When we're pressed, when we're attacked, when we're under trial, we're to get back to God's word. And we're lost on the journey, have we lost our way? Well, let's get back to the Bible. Are we in danger of taking our eyes off the destination? Well, let's get back to the Bible. Do the odds seem stacked against us as they were with the Israelites against the Amarokites? Well, let us get back to the Bible. The second bigger lesson of this passage, I think, is that not only do we go out to battle, but we must do so in prayerful dependence on God. Joshua was a great military commander, we see that later on in the Bible, and he took the best men that Israel had into the fight. But the standout element of this battle here is not what happened on the rocky desert scrub of the battlefield but what took place on the hilltop overlooking the battlefield. Just have a look at the second half of verse, verse nine. Moses said, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron and her, went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, overlooking the battlefield with the staff of God in his hands. The staff of God, you'll recall from Exodus, is the staff that had been used to bring about um, the miracles in Egypt, striking the Nile to turn to blood, bringing hail and thunder uh, from heaven and so on. The staff was a visible reminder of God's power at work through Moses and Moses with his hands raised to heaven, with the staff in his hands. And as long as as he was doing that, the Israelites were winning the battle. But whenever his hands fell down, the Amalekites started to win. I have no doubt that this is a picture of prayer. In Bible times, we often see that people pray with their hands lifted upwards. Lift your, up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord, says the psalmist in Psalm 134. This is a picture of prayerful dependence on God. The battle is raging below, but Moses, up on the hilltop with his companions Aaron and her, are in prayer to God. Now I doubt the Amalekites, when they first saw that, were particularly worried by the sight of these three, probably old men, up there on the hill. The whole scene probably looked fairly ridiculous to their eyes, pathetic even. Maybe even some of the Israelites thought the same. Imagine you're down there on the battlefield. You've got the fighting and the shouting and the screaming and the danger all around you. And up there on the hill, you can just make out in the dust The glaring sun, these three relatively weak, probably old men with their arms raised aloft. What possible effect could that have on the battle? And again, friends, maybe we can relate to that sort of thinking. We're under attack, we feel pressure, there's a difficult situation, and we sit in our room alone at home and We try and pray. Or maybe a few of us gather together to pray. Maybe it's we're praying about reaching Southall here with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe we're at a hospital bedside and the situation just seems so futile and bleak, almost pointless. What possible effect can our prayers have in the face of such formidable enemies in the face of such difficult and ferocious challenges seemed almost laughable to think that they could matter surely we would be better off surely the Israelites would be better off training up their fighters concentrating on the tactics and the strategies and the techniques that Joshua should be using in the battle that's where I think this passage challenges us this morning. Because it shows that the power is not in any one of us. The power is in God. And that's why we pray. We see that pretty clearly, don't we, in the text. The power wasn't even in Moses. He had to pray throughout the duration of this battle, he had to pray through the day. But just like later on in the Bible, some disciples in a garden called Gethsemane, he couldn't do it. He was too weak. He got tired. His hands kept dropping down. He needed a stone to sit on. He needed his brother Aaron and, and her to keep him going. And yet, nevertheless, God chose to work through the prayers of his people here at Rephidim. Whenever Moses held up his hand Israel prevailed and whenever he lowered his hand Amalek prevailed. Ridiculous as the scene may have looked earlier in the day, at the end of the day no one could be in any doubt that the Israelite victory was not the result of any military skill on Joshua's part. It was not because Moses even was a great player. It was because Of God. Because God chose to work in that way. And it's exactly the same for us today. Just as there was no special power in Moses when he prayed, there's no special power in us when we pray either. If we've ever really tried to to pray, we, we know that, don't we? We know that none of us is very good at it. Our hands keep dropping down. We're weak. The words come out wrong. It's hard work. Our efforts seem pretty pathetic. And yet God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. And when he does so, it brings him glory. Because we are weak, but the power is his. Let me just ask you this morning, whether you are, Sonny mentioned it already, but are you, are you praying? Are you praying for each other? Are you praying for yourself that you would stand in the battle and that you would continue on the journey? Are you praying for your brothers and sisters here in the congregation, or for your pastor, that they would stand? Are you praying for the work of the gospel here in Southall? Because at the end of the day, if you're not doing that, then, then who will be doing that? Who will be praying? So let's just look at the final three verses, 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we said this battle was no accident just with all just as with all the battles that we face as Christians this battle was designed to teach God's people something and we see that again in these verses the israelites were not to forget what had happened here at rephidim they were to memorialize this victory both by writing it in a scroll and by building an altar of remembrance. And what was it they were to remember? I think we see two things there to remember. First, they were to learn something about God. That's what we see in this name that Moses gives to the altar, verse 15. that Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my Banner. In the old days, we used to say, Um, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner Jehovah Nissi, these days we say Yahweh Nissi, the Lord is my banner a banner or an ensign is is the thing that armies rally around in a battle, it's the thing that's designed to motivate the troops in the battle, to remind them why they're fighting if you go up to London to some of the old churches you can see all sorts of old banners with bullet holes and sword cuts um, in them and so on. Maybe in a more tragic way, we saw um, we saw the same with the recent storming of the U.S. Capitol. There were all sorts of banners and flags being carried that I guess were meant to be signals, rallying calls to various types of people and factions in the U.S. Well, Moses builds this altar and he says. It shall be called, the Lord is my banner. In the midst of this trial, in this battle, the thing the Israelites had learned was that they were to depend on God. They were to look to him, they were to rally to him. There were going to be future battles to be faced. See that in verse 16, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There were going to be future battles to be faced, just as there will be future battles for us in our Christian lives. But as the Israelites approached those battles, they were to remember the lesson they learned learnt here. Remember when there had been a hand upon the throne of the Lord, as Moses puts it in verse 16, which might refer to Moses' hands being lifted up in prayer to the Lord, or it might refer to the Amalekites having kind of attacked God by attacking his people, or it might refer to the fact that that God himself made made a promise that he would um, continue to to war against his people's enemies. you understood uh, any of those ways. But however we understand the point, understand the phrase, the point is the same. The victory had been given to the Israelites by God when they had gone out to fight the enemy in prayerful dependence on him. They were to remember that they had gone into battle not just with their swords and with their armour on but with their eyes closed and their arms raised aloft. And by building this altar the Israelites were declaring to everyone that this God, the Lord would ever be their their banner, their rallying point. The one that identified and distinguished them as a people. And again, I wonder if that is true of us today, this morning, if we're Christians. Do people around about us, in our homes, in our workplaces, schools, neighbourhoods, do they know that we depend on this God? Is our identity bound up in him? I wonder if, if Ealing Council and, and Harrow Council were to, to make a rule that everybody who lived in these, those two boroughs had to put a banner over their house that signified what was most important to the person living in the house, what motivates the person living in the house, what stirs us up to go on in this world day by day. If that was to happen, would your, what would your banner have on it? Would your banner have the name of God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on it? Or would it look pretty similar to your unbelieving neighbour next door who knows nothing of the God of the Bible? But there's a second thing that we learn in these verses, and that is that the war with the Amalekites. The war with Amalek is not going to last forever. There will come a time when Amalek is no more. See that in verse 14. (coughs) The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Israelites met the Amalekites a number of other times in the Bible after this. And sadly, you can read about it in uh, Numbers and in 1 Samuel, sadly the Israelites completely forgot the lessons that they'd learned here, and the battle went badly for them on those occasions. The Lord was not their banner in those battles. But eventually, in the days of King David, at the end of 1 Samuel, The Amalekites are completely vanquished in battle, and we never read of them again. And This promise, and the subsequent fulfilment of it, is a picture, I think, that there's a coming a day when God will finally destroy all his enemies, all the enemies that attack and harass his people, all the pains and afflictions and temptations and trials that we face here and now. And he will do so by means of a greater king than King David. That king, of course, is the Lord Jesus. We know the Lord Jesus Christ has already won the victory over all his enemies when he died on the cross. We read that in Colossians. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And now the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven and he's putting down all his enemies until the day when he hands over the kingdom to his Father. As the Apostle Paul puts it at the end of 1 Corinthians, the end will come when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We've not reached that day yet, but it's coming. And if we're Christians here this morning, that is what we're heading towards. That is what we're journeying towards. I don't know what your greatest challenge is to living as a Christian in this world at the moment. But I do know that if the Lord is your banner, that he is able to bear all the weight of that challenge with you, however difficult The battle looks. That was the lesson the Israelites learnt at Rephidim. But we are in a much better position today to learn that lesson than the Israelites in the Old Testament ever were. As you may know, one of the big themes from the book of Exodus is is who is is this God, the Lord, Yahweh? He's not like the gods of the other nations around about. He's not just a dumb idol. He's not just a, a silent. Um, deity of humankind's own creation is actually real and personal and speaks and acts and know, is knowable It's the God who rescues who judges, who promises who carries, who provides, who loves and many other things if you read through the first half of Exodus you'll see that in abundance time and time again God is explaining who he is explaining what his character is what his name means Because that theme is not just confined to one book of the Bible, to Exodus, it runs right through the whole Bible. And we who live today on this side of the cross and have the whole Bible, we know that that who God is, is revealed to us most clearly in the New Testament, in the person of the Lord Jesus. As the prophet John puts it in. In John chapter 1, that no one's ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Israelites knew something of God, but we who live today know so much more because of the Lord Jesus having come into this world. The Israelites had a very imperfect, mediated, representative standing between God and man, Moses. Moses was not perfect, his hands kept dropping down. But we, today, have a much better mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect mediator, the incarnate Son of God. And now, because Jesus ascended after his death and resurrection, ascended to his fathers, right hand the side, there is a man in heaven who is interceding for us who can sympathise with us in all of the battles, in all of our weakness, in all of our challenges because he's experienced life in this world. He's experienced what it is to face temptation, to face the frailty of living in this world, hostility. But he's conquered that. He's gone on on ahead and he's ascended to heaven. He's ascended to the place to which we are going. He's completed the journey. And he stands there now in heaven. Interceding for us, and we can be sure that unlike Moses, his prayers are without any weakness, without any frailty. And therefore, as Christians this morning, whatever trials and attacks and difficulties we're facing, we are to be looking in the battle, not on our own skill, our own prayers, but we're going to be looking upwards, not to it not to a physical hill here and now, but to to heaven. And to see the Lord Jesus Christ by faith interceding for us. See the Lord Jesus who gave his life on behalf of people like you and me. Interceding on our behalf. And we can be sure that if God chose to work through the prayers of a man like Moses, how much more will he work through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so we're to be encouraged. We're to be encouraged in the battle. We're to stand, we're to fight, but we're to look to the one who is interceding for us and be encouraged. Let me just finish with one final application. I've talked a lot this morning about being on a journey as a Christian. And no doubt many of you know what it is to be on that journey to God's promised land, to heaven. But maybe you don't yet know that and if that's you it's great that you're here with us this morning because once one time every single one of us was in the same place. We had not yet enlisted with the Lord Jesus Christ as our captain. We haven't experienced what it is to be released from captivity and to be given new life. To be brought into God's people and to be given a passport to heaven. And if that's you this morning, then let me just say that the journey to God's promised land starts at the cross of Jesus Christ. That has always been the way. So what the Israelites found themselves. There had to be a sacrifice first before they could be released and set on the journey. Blood had to be shed for them before they could start on the journey. Remember how that happened earlier on in Exodus, on the night of the first Passover. That was the means that God used to release them from their captivity and to set them on this journey. And so too with all of us. We cannot be released from our spiritual slavery to sin and set on this journey to God's promised land until we've first been to the cross in repentance and faith. And seeing the Son of God sacrificed there on our behalf, carrying our guilt and bearing God's righteous judgement in our place. Before we can become one of God's people, before we can become a Christian, we must have Christ's blood painted over us. That is the mark that the price has been paid, the price of entry into God's promised land. And there's no other way, to enter. there's no other way to be on this journey and to ultimately reach the destination that God has promised us. At the cross, we get given our passport to heaven. We get our new identities as one of God's people. And we receive His power, the power of the Holy Spirit, to go on living for Him day by day on the journey. Working, fighting, praying, depending on God. Thanking him for the victories. And being able to say that the Lord is my banner. Let's stop there and pray Heavenly Father, we praise you that you lead and guide your people, you teach us along the way. We praise you that you have such a Wonderful and perfect destination in store for your people. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has gone ahead of us and is even now preparing the way for us. Oh Lord God, we pray that all of us here this morning, whether we're online or in this hall, would know what it is to be able to say, the Lord is my banner. Pray, Lord God, we would know what it is to be identified as one of your people To be standing, depending on you. To be living lives that are characterised by our relationship with you. Pray, Lord God, that you would be um, working in each of us. That you would help us on in the journey. We know, Lord God, we need your help. We cannot do it by ourselves. We are so weak and frail and fragile. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you give us so much. Most of all, you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, Lord God, that he is there on your right-hand side, interceding for us even now, and we just rejoice in that. You know, things look so, so, so weak and futile oftentimes to our eyes, but Lord God, give us the eyes of faith that we might be able to look up towards heaven and see him there on your right-hand side and know that um, we are in his hand and we are uh, in his control, and to rejoice in that. Thank you for your spirit, too. It's a work in us, to open our eyes to the truth. Pray, Lord God, if you'd be pleased to bless us and keep us, help us now as we go out. In Jesus' name, Amen.